What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. The United States women's soccer team lost to Sweden in the round of 16 at this year's World Cup, effectively ending their dominant run and sending them packing much sooner than anyone expected. But this early exit has also reignited the conversation around equal pay. So today's podcast will provide clarity by examining the nuance behind this topic. I had a lot of fun putting this episode together, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Okay, so truthfully, I wasn't expecting to make a podcast about the U.S. women's national soccer team, at least not at this point. I, like many others, expected them to be competing for a championship at the World Cup this year. They were the favorite team. They had just won in 2015 and 2019, and they've been one of the most dominant soccer teams in the world over the last decade. But they end up losing in the round of 16 to Sweden this past weekend, and they're headed home. And to be quite honest, the team just didn't really play all that well this year. They couldn't score goals. They actually outshot Sweden 22 to 9 uh, in the last game, and they had 11 shots on goal compared to their one. So they were the better team all match. It seemed like they should have won. They just couldn't finish the job. The goalkeeper for Sweden was amazing, and they end up losing on penalties, and they're headed home. But this has offered the opportunity to many people to dunk on them on social media. And look, I'm not ignorant. I've seen some of these rumblings happen over the last few weeks with the tournament coming up and being in action. And you could tell there was just a little bit different of a feeling from 2015 and 2019 when it came to this year's Women's World Cup team. The teams of the past were beloved, beloved by virtually everyone. Everyone wanted to see them win. They were happy when they were winning. Americans had immense national pride and they were excited about the concept and the idea that we were the world's best nation when it came to women's soccer. But this year felt a little bit different, and we'll get into a little bit of why that is. But one of the things that I was surprised to see was when I woke up on Sunday morning and I'm watching this match, as we got towards the end and we got into penalty kicks, it was clear there was a group of people online that did not want this team to win. And the reason why that's so weird for me is because, you know, I grew up watching the Olympics, the World Cup, whatever it is, and it doesn't matter what it is, right? I could have no interest in archery or curling or ice skating or anything really, but I turn it on and it's the Olympics or whatever. And if USA is competing, I'm rooting for them to win. That's just how it is, right? I'm born in the United States. I live in the United States today and I have immense pride for our nation. And I'm sure many other people that live in other areas that are listening to this podcast feel the same way about their country, depending on the circumstances, of course. But I think many people feel that way. And that had a clear change this year. There were people that were excited the United States lost. They immediately started making fun of Megan Rapinoe for missing the penalty. There was highlight videos or what we'll call non-highlight videos of her going around after the match of her missing kicks. They were making fun of the coach for shoving her in, saying they were giving her charity minutes and other players too. It wasn't just her, but it felt like people were excited. A portion of people were excited that the women's team lost. Now, the reason why I didn't necessarily want to do this podcast in the first place was because it feels like this has become political in some instances. And in one sense, I get it, right? The team won in 2015, then won again in 2019, and they've done a lot outside of the game over the last four years between those two World Cups and this year's World Cup, standing for things that they believe are right, looking to get equal pay with the men's team, and just general kind of activism-related things that we'll talk about. But one of the weird things to me was that how many people were rooting against them. That's first. But secondly, the other topic that came to the attention of many people after this loss was the concept of equal pay that has been agreed upon 
between the CBA, between the men's team, the women's team, and U.S. soccer. Now, this is in the past. This has already happened, but this is the first World Cup where it's been in action. So some of the numbers came out. I actually tweeted it too. And when I tweeted it, I literally just did it because I thought people were curious and were like, hey, this new agreement just came out. How does it look when the actual numbers are finalized now? And I'll read it to you and then we'll talk through it. So the structure of the new equal pay agreement between the men's and women's U.S. national soccer teams worked like this for the first World Cup cycle. And this is just World Cups. It's not counting anything else, appearance fees, other tournaments, anything else like that. Just the World Cup. The men's team took home $13 million for reaching the round of 16 at the World Cup in Qatar last year. So men's team, $16 million for round of 16 last year. The women's team is taking home $3.25 million for reaching the round of 16 at this year's World Cup. So the way that the agreement works is they pull that money together. They take the men's money and the women's money and group it together. That equals, if you add up the $13 million and the $3.25 million, that equals $16.25 million. 10% of that $16.25 million, call it $1.6 million, goes to U.S. soccer. That's used to grow the game for things around U.S. soccer, administrative purposes, whatever. It goes to U.S. soccer, 10%. The remaining 90% is split evenly among the men's and the women's team. So again, when you subtract the 10% from the $16.25 million, that leaves over $14.6 million, and that is then split in half. So $7.3 million goes to the men's team and $7.3 million goes to the women's team. That comes out when you divide it by the number of players on each team. There's a little bit more on the men's team and a little bit less on the women's team. That comes out to about $300,000 per player. So the easiest way to look at this, and some people reacted this way online, is that the men's team is subsidizing through socialism to some degree the women's team, right? Because they won $13 million at their tournament. The women won $3.25 million, but the men are giving up roughly $6 million to the women, right? And that's what the numbers say. That is correct. That is 100% true. But the way I want to explain this is that there's a lot of nuance behind this that gets lost online. And I don't have a horse in this race. I, I think it's amazing that U.S. soccer is growing. If you look at what's happened over the last few weeks here with Lionel Messi, with a bunch of the international friendlies in New Jersey and California and Vegas and Texas, there are massive crowds here. And to some degree, women's soccer led that charge, right, in 2015, 2019, and what they've been able to accomplish over the last decade. I want to make sure they get credit for that. But I think what's gotten lost here is the nuance behind this conversation of equal pay. So for those that don't know, the women's team, the women's uh, U.S. soccer team here in the United States, has been immensely more popular than the men's team. The women's team gets more viewers, they sell more jerseys, they get more sponsorships, they get more money from here in the United States. For example, the number one most watched soccer game ever on U.S. television is the 2015 Women's World Cup Final USA versus Japan at 25 million viewers in the United States. Now look, we're not talking about the Super Bowl here, but 25 million viewers is a hell of a lot of viewers for a, for a soccer match specifically, but a women's soccer match. Most ever in the United States for any soccer match, 25 million viewers. Number two is USA versus Portugal in 2015, Men's World Cup, 18 million viewers. Number three is the 1999 Women's World Cup final, 18 million viewers. We had Argentina versus Germany in the Men's World Cup final in uh, 2014 with 17 million viewers. So there's a few games that are up there, but the women hold the most watched game of all time at 25 million viewers for the 2015 Women's World Cup final, USA versus Japan. Not only that, you have to just feel what's happening a little bit culturally, right? The men's team has drastically underperformed. 
they've been non-existent. If you look at 2018, they didn't even make the World Cup, right? They literally did not make the World Cup. Now, that's the first time it had happened in about 30 years, I believe, but they didn't make the World Cup. And the following year, the women's team won the World Cup. So there's a drastic difference in the performance of the two teams. The women's team has been significantly better than the men's team over the last decade and, and, and for most. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. It's history. The nuance here is that when it comes to revenue, the vast majority of these teams are making their money through the World Cup. This is an event that happens once per year, and it brings an immense amount of prize money historically for the men and now so for the women. And I'll explain. So if you look back at the men's prize money, it's definitely grown, but the women's is growing at a much faster rate. So the way this works is FIFA generates money for the tournament. They're the governing body. They sell sponsorships. They sell tickets. They do host fee, like all this stuff, right? All the money they generate goes into a pot. They take a portion of that and they give it back to the teams through prize money through the tournament. So it's this really complex system that you get prizes based on where you finish in the tournament, if you win, kind of knockout stages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2006, they gave out $236 million. In 2022, they gave out $440 million. So it's almost doubled over, call it, you know, nearly 20 years, over two decades. It went from $236 million in prize money to $440 million in prize money last year for the World Cup in Qatar. The women's prize money has drastically increased. When the men were giving out $236 million in prize money in 2006, the very next year, the women only got $5.8 million. Again, $236 million was given out to the men's World Cup in 2006. And in 2007, the women's World Cup, the purse for that was just $5.8 million. Now, this has grown tremendously over the years. It was actually only $30 million still in 2019. But from 2019 to this year, it rose from $30 million to $110 million. So this year's Women's World Cup, they're going to hand out $110 million in prize money. Now, this is significant because it's a much, much, much higher percentage than the Men's World Cup. The last Men's World Cup cycle generated a record $7.5 billion in revenue. That's how much money that tournament is generating. It's in, quite frankly, obscene amount. It's the world's most popular sport. They had 5 billion people watch the tournament cumulative last year. And the Women's World Cup is generating a fraction of that, right? So if you talk about the tournament specifically, they're probably still only generating the last term, I believe it was like $150 million, but call it two to 300 million this year. So drastically less than the men's tournament. And if you look at the whole cycle combined, it's less than a billion dollars in total revenue for the women. So this is obviously less than the men's tournament. And if you look at it when it comes to viewership, that's the main reason, right? The final between the men was watched by 1.5 billion people last year between France and Argentina with Argentina winning. It was watched by 1.5 billion people last year, 1.5 billion. So what has historically happened with these viewership rights is that FIFA goes out and they sell them together. But really what they're selling is the men's rights. And they go to Fox, they go to you know every other network in the world across different countries, and they bid out the World Cup rights. And the women's rights have traditionally been a throw-in. Quite frankly, and I'm not just saying that, that's that's what FIFA's president calls it. They've literally just thrown them in as an addition to the rights to this tournament. 
The tournament wasn't nearly as big. Many of the other countries historically have not taken soccer nearly as serious on the women's side as the men's side. That's not the truth here in the United States. It's actually been, been quite frankly, the opposite. But now many other countries are taking it much more seriously. The game has grown a lot. The tournament has expanded in size. There used to only be 24 teams competing. Now there's 32 teams competing. The commercial growth of the sport has been tremendous over the last decade. There was strong viewership in 2019 for France. And the game has grown a lot. So what FIFA did was they saw this as an opportunity to generate more revenue for the Women's World Cup and their their organization overall. So they split out the rights and they went out and they said, hey, look, we want to generate between 200 million to 300 million on the top end in revenue from a broadcasting rights standpoint, specifically for this tournament. And they weren't able to do it. They weren't able to do it. If you look at the quotes from the FIFA president, he actually said that some of the countries that they went to to go bid out these domestic rights to were bidding one one hundredth of what they were offering for the men's rights. One one hundredth, right? And again, I'm not making this up. You can go look up the data and look up the stats and the quotes from FIFA's president. He says it was sometimes 50% cheaper, sometimes it was 25% cheaper, but in some cases it was 1% of what they were offering for the men's rights. And you know, he, he said, I'm disgusted by this. I've been trying to get equal pay for everyone. By 2026, 2027, he actually said he expects the men's and the women's tournament to hand out just as much money in prize money, equal pay there, you know, whether it's 450 million or 500 million or whatever. Obviously, the women's tournament has a lot longer way to go than the men's tournament, but he's been saying that for many years now that he wants to get even pay there. But I tell you all this for one specific reason. What the women have accomplished in the United States from a pay perspective, no other country in the world has done that. There's 32 teams in the Women's World Cup this year. The 31 other teams, none of them have equal pay. Not a single one of them has equal pay. I don't care if we're talking about England, Japan, Jamaica, Australia. None of these teams have equal pay. Australia actually for many years has paraded around and quite frankly bragged that they are the only Women's World Cup country to have equal pay, down to the cent with the men's team. And the truth of the matter is that that's a partial truth. They have equal pay down to the cent with the men's team, but it specifically excludes World Cup payments specifically excludes World Cup payments. So everything else is equal to a T. 100% they split with the men's team, but World Cup payments. And that's a huge but because that's where most of the money comes from, right? So even Australia, who's paraded around and said, we have equal pay, it's not true. The women's team is the only team out of the 32 teams at this Women's World Cup that has equal pay with the men's team. And I think when you look at it in context is, first off, the men's team agreed to this, right? There's a CBA that's signed between all of the bodies in this deal. They agreed to it. And they, they allow it. And I think why they did that was because this money, one, you want the domestic game to grow. I think they, they understand the significance that the women's team has played in the sport as a whole in this country over the last decade. It's part of the reason why their team is getting more viewership now. It's why 15 million people watched them play England last Thanksgiving during the World Cup. I get it. 100%. I think there's part of that there. But the other part of this is that the men in their leagues, what we'll call their normal job, their, their nine to five, they make significantly more money than the women do. So most of the women's players here in the United States are playing in the NWSL. That's the domestic women's soccer league here in the United States. Those players, Trinity Rodman, for example, who is a, a young player on the U.S. women's national soccer team, amazing player, great player. She signed the richest deal in NWSL history. I believe it was last year. It was a four-year deal worth $1.1 million. Four-year deal, $1.1 million. So that's you know less than $300,000 a year she's getting paid. Now, there's some players that are making more than that on an annual basis, call it $300,000, $400,000, maybe even up to $500,000 on the high end. 
but that's like two weeks of wages for Christian Pulisic, right? We're talking about Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams. These are players that are in the Premier League or Serie A, or League One, right? Like there's a bunch of U.S. men's players that have now gone abroad in Europe and are making big, big, big bucks. So for them to reduce their pay, quite frankly, what they've done from what they would have gotten maybe 500000 from this World Cup cycle to 300000 it's not nearly as huge to them as it is to a women's player where that $200,000 difference, or in some cases, three or $400,000 difference, depending on where these teams actually end up finishing in a different World Cup, that difference of a few hundred thousand dollars to a women's player makes a huge difference, right? And when you add in the fact that some of the men were actually even donating their checks from the World Cup tournaments in some years, it makes even more sense, right? So like you get equal pay, you recognize what the women have done for this sport over the last two decades, and you become the first country in the entire world to do this, a first time. So I think that's part of the reason why. And ultimately what we're going to find now is it's going to get much more competitive for the women's team. A lot of the world seemingly has caught up with our dominance when it comes to women's soccer. They're taking the sport a lot more seriously than they traditionally have. They're a lot more competitive than they have been. And I'm excited because it looks like now it's like a redeemed team situation, right? The women have to come back four years from now and they have to play their asses off. And they have to really, really, really show that they are back to the dominant force that they were. Again, some of the older players are going to be retiring, obviously. It's going to be a changing of the guard. They're going to have youth. And some of these new players that are on the team this year are going to be a little bit more experienced. So I'm excited about it. But first and foremost, I hope you guys got out of this conversation that there is nuance around this topic. There's a reason why this was agreed upon. It's a CBA. There's other leagues, other teams, other conferences that do this whether it's the SEC, whether it's a professional sporting organization, whether it's you know other countries that are looking at doing similar deals. The US is the first country to do this. I do not think that they will be the last. And the numbers will tell you, if you drill down to the per player payment, that it's not nearly, not nearly as big of a deal as some people are making out to be. But still, it's a quite an interesting topic and one of the more interesting things to happen in sports business over the last few years. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back later this week. 